The following is my conversation with Pablo Arandada, the co-founder and chief innovation officer at Castex, an AI-powered legal research platform. Pablo, a graduate of Stanford Law, co-founded Castex in 2013, and since then, their team has revolutionized the legal profession. Their achievements have been recognized by the likes of the World Economic Forum and the American Bar Association. In this conversation, we'll explore the future of AI and the legal field. We'll touch on the ethics of AI and things like job displacement, and we'll also dive deep into Pablo's founding journey and the lessons he learned along the way. At the end, Pablo shares some of the books that were most influential to him and his advice to young people today on how they can navigate the future of AI. I found Pablo extremely energetic and humble, despite how successful he may be. I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope you do too. So Pablo, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you started working with AI and the founding journey at Case Text. All right. So um, I was a litigator by training, a lawyer by training. Uh, I worked at uh, Kirkland and Ellis, which is a, a big firm, uh, doing patent litigation. And one of the first cases we worked on, this is going to sound contrived, but I promise you it's true, um, was for Apple. And uh, at the time, I had never used Mac. I was a PC guy. But I had this daydream that Steve Jobs was going to come check on all the associates, which he never did. But I thought, well, I, I don't want to offend the man, so I should go buy a Mac, you know. And uh, this is, I think, 2004 or five-ish, right? You know, Steve Jobs had just come back and built that beautiful, you know, everything in the monitor computer, just one of these, you know, marvels that only, you know, Apple does. And I was comparing sort of like, you know, Steve Jobs' renaissance work with the tools that we were using to represent them, right? Which were inefficient, uh, poorly designed, just, you know, a lot of, you know, and I think that started instilling me this like real dissatisfaction with the technology that we were using for these high stake things. And, you know, the, the partners at firms had varying levels of interest in my thoughts about the technology we were using. But at some point I just had enough uh, of it. And I, I went to Quinn in New York and, you know, very similar stuff. So these are fantastic firms, best lawyers in the world. Um, and, you know, but just the tech wasn't, you know, up to, to par with the kind of stuff you're used to seeing, you know, from your Googles and your, your Apples. And so I said, I'm going to put my shoulder to try to, to try to build better legal tech. And I, I wrote this lengthy email to uh, Larry Kramer, who was the dean at Stanford Law School at the time. You know, oh, we should be, you know, this is a disgrace and we should all be embarrassed, da, da, da. And I, I joke, he could have sent me to a psychiatrist, given how long that email was. But instead, he sent me to the Stanford Center for Legal Informatics, which is, was a new center with one foot in the law school and one foot in the computer science department. And the focus there, it's also called Stanford Codex. It's not the it's not the law of technology, but the technology of law, if that makes sense, right? So it wasn't about how do you regulate tech, it's about how you use it. And um, uh, yeah, and so I, you know, I started a, a small a startup um, that was called Occam. I, I joke, it took off like a rocket, but then exploded like a rocket, <laughs> um, uh, as often happens, you know, with first startups. Um, and that was based on this idea of if you drag a brief you could then automatically parse out the case sites and the words and then use that to recommend relevant case law to oppose the brief, right? Relevant case law that's not cited, even without the attorney having to run any searches. And so, um, yeah, so that, that startup unfortunately failed. Um, I went down to, to LA, my wife's a writer, was doing copyright litigation of all things down there in a little boutique. But, you know, I had the bug, right? You know, once you've kind of gotten doing uh, founder startup stuff, it's very hard to go back, you know? So um, I taught myself just enough coding to build a, uh, a, a search engine called wellsettled.com, which was really simple pattern, the regular expression, right? Just, you know, there are certain uh, patterns in case law 
like the phrase, it is well settled. You know, that actually appears hundreds of thousands of times and it's invariably followed by a concise articulation of a legal principle. And so I sort of call it the stop words that could, right? These are like little stop, you know, it is well, these are not words that normally, you know, you might even pre-process them out, but you know, it happens in law to be a very powerful little uh, foreground, I guess. So, you know, things like that, I was basically harvesting those. And um, the director at, uh, at Stanford's law library, Paul Lomio, saw what I'd built. I kind of showed it to him and he put me in touch with a guy named Jake Heller, who had just uh, recently uh, finished his first circuit clerkship and was now working on a company called uh, Case Tech. So just, I mean, it was very, very early. I'm not even sure it had incorporated yet. Um, and so, you know, immediately saw in Jake a brother in arms, you know, somebody, you know, like myself, you know, really wanting to try to make law better through technology. And, uh, you know, I, I joined him in his living room. I was flying up and sleeping on his futon three days away. It was very startup stuff. <laughs> and, um, and that was case text. And, you know, that's been, we're like almost 10 years to the day now, I think. Uh, um, and so um, in terms of AI, so, you know, AI has meant different things as the decades have kind of up and uh, waned and, and, and gone. And, you know, certainly things like our tool Kara. So we, we did do that brief tool, you know, from the first, my first startup. Um, and it was AI in the sense that it was doing things that require intelligence, right? Like normally finding cases is very much something of intelligence, but it wasn't using neural nets. It certainly wasn't using, it was, you know, we were leveraging citation patterns and things like that. So while the appearance was AI, I don't think I'd call it AI in that sort of substantive sense. Um, and, uh, in, and, and so here we are, we were trying to take on, you know, um, we were trying to provide a full legal research tool of the kind offered by Westlaw and Lexis. And in order to do that, one of the key things you need to do is, has one case been overruled by another, right? So you can find a great case, but it could have been that later a judge overruled that case or a court overruled that case. And so the way it traditionally worked is you just have a huge army of really good attorneys that go and read basically every case and make, you know, that's how you had to do it. And gradually, you know, some technology I think was used to kind of help triage, you know, okay, this is like a candidate, this is like a high likelihood of it happening. But the problem is sometimes the court will say, sometimes the court just says, we overruled Jenkins, great. But sometimes the court will say, we regretfully resigned Jenkins to the dustbin of oblivion or something just really flowery, right? And you and I, you know, as English speakers, for us, that's fine. We see what they mean and we get it, but for a computer, that wouldn't be caught, right? That is until these early neural nets. So this is BERT. This is uh, uh, you know, one of the first models that came out. And it's important for people to understand that ChatGPT kind of brought all of this to the public uh, attention. And, and that's really a good thing, I think. These large language models actually go back at least half a decade, right? In terms of sort of this, these approaches. And so for the first time, the first flickers I saw really of this new AI was realizing, I was like, wait, so the computer could tell that that means overrule? Because that's not how you normally say it. That was my first sort of glimmers of like, wait a minute, something's changing. And then that accelerated a lot when we started using these approaches for search. Um, attorneys have for the you know, last half century have been at the mercy of keywords that you've searched and you have to guess the right word or think of the right word because that's the only way you're gonna see results. And keyword search is both over and under inclusive at the same time. You bring in a bunch of stuff you didn't want and you know, and anyone, you know, anyone who does science, you know, the science of information retrieval, this is like day one stuff. You bring in a bunch of stuff you don't want, right? So that's uh, precision. And then much worse is you miss things that you did want and that's, that's recall. And uh, 
that's also, you know, if you're just using words, you're not able to necessarily get like a full principle out or a full concept, right? So it was very crude stuff. Once we applied, we trained our own model, our own language model on the common law using the BERT approach, basically. Suddenly you could use a complete sentence to search. Just so you could take it out of your draft brief and say, I want this principle, I need support for it. And it would bring back results even if there was no overlap, absolutely zero overlap in the articulation. And so um, that then now now we were really starting to get going, right? So now you're suddenly like created a new level of information retrieval because of these language models. And we first did it for case law. Everyone loved it for case law. And then they started saying, wait, why just case law? Why can't I search my transcripts like this or search my e-discovery? And so we built a tool called AllSearch uh, that uh, allowed you to kind of point this approach to other areas, to other corpora. In 2020, OpenAI showed us GBT3. And, you know, it was one of these things where certainly there were a lot of like wow moments with GBT3. But, you know, when we dug in deeper, it just wasn't there for the kind of things lawyers need to do. It just wasn't reliable enough. It wasn't nuanced enough. So, um, you know, we basically, you know, weren't really working with those uh, autoregressive uh, models for a couple of years. We just, you know, but uh, last September we saw GPT-4 <laughs> and it was immediately apparent that we had not just kind of crossed an inflection point, we kind of leapt over it. Um, and uh, we, you know, I think it's fair to say we basically pivoted the entire company. We just had pencils down on anything anyone's doing. And... I will say now, what, 10 months later, no reason to doubt that decision. I think that was the right call because we were able to start applying GPT-4 to like legal research, to e-discovery, to deposition prep, to contract analysis, you know, all of these number of things and do it in a way that's secure, in a way that, you know, because it uses retrieval augmented generation, you don't have to deal with hallucinations or it being out of date. And so, um, and now, you know, the last two months, we've certainly things have blown up a lot, right? And so, you know, Jake and I joke about we're sort of an overnight success 10 years in the making, if that makes sense. Um, but, um, you know, certainly this is, I, I think, the most exciting time uh, for legal technology. Uh, and certainly in my career, and I would I'd be hard pressed to find any other decade that where there's this much potential to, to make things better. Yeah, it's touching on that. Um, what advice do you have for, founders today, people in most of our audiences in university, if we're wanting to leverage this opportunity from this time, um, especially relating to AI, what what advice would you have for starting starting a new thing? Okay, so, you know, I think um, a lot of this advice for founders, at least that I have it, and some of this I'm, you know, regurgitating kind of the conventional wisdom you see around. And, and by the way, when it comes to advice for founders, you know, people like Paul Graham, there are much better people to go to than just myself. I'm one guy in one little weird niche of legal tech, which is a very an often distorted thing. But I'd say a couple of things. One is, um, you know, start with real problems and real pain points. Don't say this is a neat tech. Let me hope I can find something to apply it to. Um, I'm not saying that that doesn't work sometimes, but to, for my mind, it's much better to start with something real as a problem and then say, okay, how can technology solve it? And what you'll probably find with large language models is that they can solve a lot of problems that were previously pretty intractable. To be clear, I'm not saying don't also use, you know, LLM for a better interface for whatever you're doing. Like there's sort of generic ways to apply it that I'm sure are great. But in terms of like what you might wrap a company around, I think really think about it, not in terms of start with the tech and then what can I do, but start with the problem or like, what is it I want to create for users? And then where can the tech uh, help? And, you know, then just, 
as always, get in there, prototype, you know, get in front of users, uh, you know, really iterate it quickly. Um, but yes, I, I do think there are going to be a huge number of really useful uh, uh, products created and companies uh, 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 anchored in these products from this new tech. I think a lot of people, when they look at the release of these large language models, um, it's kind of scary. It's hard to predict kind of the rate of progression after this. Um, some people say that um, we overestimate the rate of uh, improvement at the brink of a cutting edge technology like this, because we assume that innovation like this will continue. What's your kind of outlook on the next 10 or 15 years of with large language models or just AI in general? I mean, in a world where you have like Jeff Hinton and like Jan McCune disagreeing on this stuff, like, believe me, I'm not going to hazard again. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like again, there are the titans of these fields are are having a big discussion about this, right? Um, and you're in, you know, and, and a lot, some of that's happening in the context of is there going to be, you know, real problems like rogue AI and things like that. Um, so, so I, I don't, you know, I, I don't want to to overstep my pay grade here in terms of predictions on this stuff. What I what I'll say is that um, I think that uh, there will be increased the, the ability to do this. I hope will become more democratized in the sense that I think some of these open source models they're not there yet from what I've seen, but they're getting better. Um, and so I, I, I do think that the proprietary ones will always probably be one level ahead. But the open source ones are going to be getting better and better. And at some point, I think we'll be able to do a lot of the things that you want. I think that's a good thing. Obviously, the, the multimodal stuff that's coming out with vision, I think, is going to be a really important part of it. So it's not just that we'll get better and better at language, but will we get better and better at the other streams of information that, that you have to process? And, you know, I don't know. I... I, I, I... <laughs> My, my, I'm basically going to say, let me round down to layman. So I'll just say my layman's opinion on this. It's closer than an than AI expert. Is such that I think the folks that think that there is going to be a ceiling to what you can do just doing LLMs. I think that, and I believe Sam Oldman uh, says this, you know, I think, um, I know Yama, you know, that there's still some big pieces to like true AGI, artificial general intelligence, that are missing. Um, so I don't think we'll just scale up what we have to that. Regional minds might feel differently. I frankly do want to try. I think we should scale these up as much as we can until it plateaus. Um, I'm, I, I see such palpable gains right now. So to give one example, uh, one of our early beta clients is the California Innocence Project. So essentially what that happened, look, we incarcerate innocent people in this country. We don't intend to, but we do it. And we do it a lot more than frankly we should. The Innocence Project helped exonerate people who were wrongly convicted, right? that's as real of a justice as I think you can have. And what they told us is using co-counsel, our, our tool built on GPT-4, we're better able to triage the applications. We're better able to find the good people to help, right? So to me, that's a very concrete, palpable good. And I weigh that against this nebulous, amorphous, oh, what if it decides it's the master one day and all of these things? And it's really hard for me to say, don't help these guys. And the, and the same thing with other more immediate regulatory issues like transparency. Right, like, oh, you shouldn't ever use it unless you know exactly how it was created. I don't know. It's not clear to me that that guy in jail really cares exactly which data they fed through the large language model. I think he just wants to get out of jail. And so I do think that for me, uh, uh, well, I, I definitely, uh, I'm glad there are people thinking about the bigger implications on it. My tendency is to want to say, like, realize the palpable gains and go from there rather than kind of like shut everything down because there could one day be this nightmare scenario. 
What do you think about the more near-term implications, things like job disruption, um, specifically in the legal field and also just in the broader markets? Are there skills that we should be developing to be resistant to this disruption? Um, and are there certain skills or uh, industries that we should steer clear of because they're, they're doomed? Yeah, I joke. Uh, don't worry, there'll be plenty of jobs. You can be a, a shiatsu masseuse will still be around. Um, you can donate plasma. You know, no, I, So, okay, on the job thing, um, and again, better minds than mine, but let me just, you know, for things that I've been hearing that have kind of resonated. I think one school of thought is every time everyone's worried about this and what happens is a bunch of new jobs are created. And so don't worry. And then another school of thought is, no, this is qualitatively different, both because of the rate and like how quickly it's going to spread. Like the industrial revolution was like, what, I don't know, decades and decades, maybe a century of it kind of spreading. This suddenly chat GPT had 100 million users in like a blink of an eye or something like that. And the sense that the kind of things it can do now, it, it's so broad and so flexible that it's just going to disrupt so much that you won't see that replacement. So as you're going to see as a theme on this, uh, I don't have answers. I don't have certainty, but I, I, I can maybe speak to a little bit of the, of the, the polls that I've seen. From law, what I would say is this. I do not think that this is a robot lawyer or anywhere close to it, our tool. It is a powerful tool that can complement and supplement an attorney's brain. But there's a lot of things that an attorney needs to do that this AI cannot do. And it's, we're, we're well far from a place that I would want somebody that I care about to be represented by the AI. And you know, there are people that make little flashy kind of marketing things where they say, oh, we're gonna have our AI argue before the Supreme Court, right? Um, and actually, you know, I'm actually a big fan of Josh Browder's. I think uh, stuff he's doing in consumer rights is just like the Lord's work. I do think sometimes he kind of deliberately kind of pokes the bear in terms of, oh, why not just go have it represent you in oral argument? You know, I, I just don't think it's there yet. Um, and that's not to say it can't get there one day, but right now I think uh, it's not. And then in terms of like, what do you focus on? Okay, well, I'd say a few things. First, keep wrestling with the blank page. As tempting as it's gonna be, because the blank page is hard. It's really hard to stare at that thing and then think, how do I, what's the first sentence I want? Large language models are great at guessing the next word, but choosing the first word, that's something that they don't really do. And to my mind, especially for students, as painful as that is, that is you were learning how to think and you were learning how to balance competing interests in a way that nothing else quite teaches it like the blank page. And so don't kid yourself by saying, well, I'm going to go edit the adverbs that the GPT created. And then I'm going to say, we did this together. You're not, I don't think you're doing yourself any favors there. I think you're, you're depriving yourself of necessary pain and you will come out uh, less able to handle yourself in this new world that's getting created. Um, that's my two cents. Do you think once you have that those first few words and you design the outline, is it useful to to use those tools, especially in like a learning environment? Like you have tools like the Copilot for programming and things like that. Do you think it's it's useful to to use those, or do you think it's better to kind of build up that fundamental understanding first? Interesting. Well, a couple of things. So on coding, you know. I, I, like I said, I taught myself just enough coding to make that very basic search engine. I, I don't want to tell coders how to like the code. Let's talk to other folks about coding, right? Um, I mean, it, like it could be a different calculus there with the blank page and coding, right? Um, yeah, once you've tackled the hardest parts of the blank page, choosing those things, using the LLMs to help kind of supplement things. Yeah, it's probably less, you know, uh, you know, it's not the end of the world to my mind. But um, do the heavy lifting part yourself as, as, as inverse as that sounds. When you're a student, because your whole point as a student is actually to learn how to think and to learn how to tackle these things. And as 
strange as this might sound, I don't know if you know, in the Karate Kid, uh, dating myself, for me, that was like a big childhood movie. Maybe they remade it or something. But are you familiar with this? And like the, he goes to train under the sensei and the sensei's like, okay, go wash all my cars. Yeah. <laughs> Waxy, right? And it turns out that this tedious thing that seems like, why am I doing this is actually related to karate, right? I know it sounds strange, but I do think that you might be sitting there being like, why can't I just have this thing write the essay and then I'll change it how I want? No, you tackle it first. That's the car washing because it is, it's helping you in ways that you might not even realize. Um, so yeah, I, I think a balance is fine, but the blank page I'd leave to you um, while in school. I really like that because I feel like the blank page is how you create new ideas. Like you can recycle old ideas. Like one of my friends is a musician and He's worried about being replaced by AI. And I said, AI can make you Drake's music. AI can make you Kanye West music. But the only person who can make your music is you because that's like, right. it's, all, it's all trained on, on past data sets, right? So. That's right. That's right. And it's only after Outcast maybe it can start to mimic Outcast. But exactly. Outcast had to be Outcast first for it to even do that. That's right. Yeah. And, and, and you know, that sort of, you know, in a good outcome on this, we start privilege, you know, prioritizing creativity, originality, and these things, because everything else will just be automated, right? Anyone can make the bleh. And so how do you kind of distinguish yourself? Exactly. When, you, when you're looking at like the best case future of AI, maybe you can give me two, two answers, like 10 years from now, um, and then 50 or 100 years, kind of like the crazy, <laughs> just like sci-fi. What, what is like the, the best case scenario with AI for you? Well, I mean, no, I think I think um, I think Sam Altman does the best job kind of laying out those two kind of versions. I mean, what he talks about in terms of can you imagine having, uh, you know, most of the mysteries of science solved for us? Like, I, I mean, we don't know what the hell's going on. We don't. Most of the universe is this dark matter. We don't even know what it, really what it is. We have no idea how our brains actually work. We can't unify our fundamental theories of physics. Right. Um, we can't go get a you know, these tourists down there stuck at the bottom of the ocean and we can't go find them because I guess, you know, it's just hard to build something that can, you know, the idea of of super intelligence solving this like range, everything from cancer treatment to material science, right? I'm sorry, that is a very compelling uh, world. Um, and uh, one, you know, we'll see on that. So, so, you know, predicting a century out, God knows, right? Um, short term, what I'd like to see, and I'll just speak from law, right? I think the, the bad world is this sort of McDonald'sification of law and everyone's just regurgitating the same kind of chat generated things and like, right, it's kind of stagnant. The best world to me is one where freed from a lot of the tedium, attorneys are now being able to go do deeper analysis, not just about what the law is, but what it might be. Go finding the you know, paper from UChicago's sociology department that shows that the judge's assumption about what would happen is wrong, right? Really just like increasing the quality of the streams of advocacy that go into the courts, um, I think would be one way it could be a lot better. And I also think we can amplify those clinics that are there to help people, right? I think this is one of the most important developments for access to justice imaginable because you have these attorneys and we're gonna, we're gonna be working with uh, the clinics at Harvard Law School for some early kind of proof of concepts. These attorneys are there helping people but they can only help so many people in a day. And so you have this line around the block to the clinic well, what if there was no line? What if everybody got helped? And I think that the LLMs can help there, um, again, with attorney oversight. I like the idea of using it as a tool to like enhance productivity and to enhance um, so you can focus on the creativity and things like that, that you, the things that make your job um, satisfying and empowering right. rather than the tedious day-to-day um, -day things. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, most people didn't go to law school 
to read through a million documents, 94% of which are completely irrelevant, right? <laughs> I mean, uh, and so I think, uh, you know, the, the good outcome will be one where I think we can get to the, the most important parts of law while amplifying access to justice. Going back to the the skills we can learn, you talked about um, the blank page technique. It's still still kind of suffering through that writer's block and being able to organize our own ideas. Do you have any advice about like specific skills that we should um, be focusing on uh, whilst in university or opportunities that we should seek out? Oh, that's a good question. Um, you're probably sick of hearing me say over and over like they're you know better experts on this topic than myself. But um, you know, for me, I'm going to just go with blank page one. And let the, the other ones go because I'll, I'll just be on one message, you know. Learn some, you know. That's my thing. If you do that, you're gonna probably. I think you'll you'll pick up the other things that you need, right? Um, and if you don't do that, I don't think you will. And that's you know probably a little bit of an overstatement, but it's clean. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that's where I'd start. Um, I'm not... Going back to your university days, are there um, throughout the throughout the journey through through university and kind of your early career? Are there a few key opportunities or a few key habits or a few things, key things that uh, you I was, made the biggest difference? So I, I was so lucky. All right, here we go. So I, um, you know, in my very early uh, days, I was really interested in bioethics and the intersection of biotechnology and law. And uh, my, like, you know, middle of my freshman year at Berkeley, I read that there was this Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory nearby and that it had the Human Genome Project was there. <laughs> And I, uh, I went to, on campus to try to get like a pamphlet. I just didn't know anything. And they literally said, we're out of pamphlets, I guess you'd have to go to the lab. And I was just too, I didn't know, right? So I just walked up this very long hill and I got, I don't even know how I got past security, but <laughs> I got into the lab and I'll never forget. I walked in the hallway and there was this scientist who looked, he was very engrossed in thought. And he looks up when I kind of come to his door and I think he thought like, what's the fastest way to make this guy go away? And he's like, what, what you want a job or something? And I was like, yeah, that's good. <laughs> he's like, call this person. <laughs> and so I, I joke, I was the lowest ranking person on the human genome project. I was, you know, they, I'm talking like, if they knocked over a thidium bromide or anything else that's carcinogenic, Pablo, get in there, buddy. <laughs> like, liquid nitrogen in the elevator where if it exploded, I'd be a popsicle. Hey, follow, you know, so I, I don't want to overstate it. I was, you know, lab assistant. But it filled, I mean, I, I will say as an impressionable, you know, 18, 19 year old to be surrounded by international researchers mapping the human genome. I did fill me both with a sense of ambition, you know, like you got it, there are big things and you can go do them. And just sort of this joy of kind of working and collaborating on, on things. And then also this, this sense of informatics, right? So I do think, um, I, you know, more than I deserved, I got exposed to like the highest levels of genomics and genetics. <laughs> Uh, and so what is the advice? Well, first, don't be afraid to walk up that hill. Don't be afraid to just show up and ask, especially uh, undergrads. I mean, you guys are adorable. You know, <laughs> um, and if you're sincere and if you go there, you might think there's no way I can just go ask to join something like that. You know what? Try it because most people don't even go ask. And so my advice to you there, I mean, what I've learned there is I'm very, I've never regretted taking a chance on reaching out to somebody that might have seemed too elite or too great. The worst thing that happens is they tell you to get lost and then you just go on. And then my other advice is uh, Winston Churchill said it best, um, success is walking from failure to failure with no loss of enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. And uh, you just, you know, I've heard else, you know, fall down seven, get up eight, right? Life is rough, life hits ups and downs and it, it comes and goes, you know, get up, keep going. 
don't don't you know, certain some of this I'm sure is cliche or whatever, but you know just understand that like you know you're going to have these big ups and downs. You're going to have rejection. You're going to have failure, and the key, believe it or not, is to just dust yourself off and keep going and don't like dwell on that or say, oh, that defines me for my life, et cetera. That's, that's awesome. I really like that quote. Do you yeah, have any other books yeah. or like, like motivational figures or, or things that um, you recommend, like uh, that you've read and had a big impact on you? Um, yeah. So um, Charles Thief has a book called Decoding the Universe, um, which is really cool and gets into sort of just how fundamental information is and talks about Maxwell's demons it's interesting for neural nets, there's actually a, um, a, a book called the Avatamsaka Sutra, the flower ornament scripture. That's like a proto-Buddhist text out of India that talks a lot about interdependent origination and the net of Indra, which is this like, imagine a net spanning the universe and in each you know, intersection is a jewel that reflects all the other jewels. Right, these sort of beautiful cosmic imagery that kind of, when you think about neural nets, you're like, oh, that's kind of like what's happening, right? So. Uh, I actually think some of the, the proto-Buddhist texts out of India is actually good sort of mental uh, stuff. And also beautiful in its own right and, you know, got a lot of wisdom there. Um, let me think, what are other key books? So I read Richard Dawkins' The Selfish Gene at a very young age, right? And I don't know if you're familiar with Dawkins. The idea is just the only thing that matters is the gene. We're just machines to replicate genes, probably oversimplistic. You asked, it did have a big impact. Whether that's a good impact or not, I don't know, maybe it kind of, you know, warped my thinking but Richard Dawkins is great uh reading his work I've, I've always loved how about um are there any um courses or things that specifically regarding AI or things like resources that you recommend our listeners check out I think take organic chemistry just because I just think it's part of a, a well-rounded education um no yeah I mean in terms of like what's the best curriculum to prepare you for AI again I want to defer to the Talk to your AI pros on that, right? I know, like you know, matrix calculus. I mean, there's certain stuff like uh, linear algebra that I, I think are like kind of the running things, but there's much better folks to consult on how to how to prepare yourself for that. Um, also, you know, don't feel you need to specialize too early, though, especially you know, undergrad. Like you know, some of the best classes I took, you know, history of art was fantastic. Um, you know, medieval European history was cool. Um, you know, I don't worry about hyper specializing right now. I think again, learn to think, expose yourselves to a lot of stuff. Um, some of the best engineers I know were classics majors, you know, they studied like Greek, you know, stuff. So, uh, you know, my advice is to not hyper-specialize too soon. I think a lot of people um, in undergrad and just in general, they they often say, I don't know what I want to do with my life. Um, I'm one of those people as well. Uh, do you yeah. have any advice for people like that who um, are still trying to figure out what career and path, like, like how do you how do you map out this thing? <laughs> Well, that ties to what I said, but the, expose yourself to different things, right? Um, you know, there are a lot of options that you haven't even considered yet. And understand, like, look, I very much was, you know, first I wanted to be a bioethicist. That was like, I was like, the idea of not being a bioethicist was nuts, right? After years of kind of working there, I kind of saw like, oh, I didn't see the field moving. Like, I, I felt like some of this stuff was always going to be 20 years away, things like that. And also that ethicists could only do so much, whereas lawyers could really like, law, now that'll make a company do this and then I was a lawyer practicing and I would have never thought I would have done tech as a start, right? So don't obsess on it too much because you'll probably pivot anyway, <laughs> right? So I think, um, you know, you, you have this amazing luxury of being able to go to you know, your university and really sample different things and sample things that you might, don't worry about what your parents think, don't give a sh you know, don't worry like who I'm supposed to be and oh my God, if I'm not a doctor or a lawyer, that means I'm not doing my, you know, I'm the eldest son, I need to be, screw all that shit. 
see see the world, if you will, sort of different courses. And uh, I know that whatever you decide right now very easily could evolve as you adapt and don't be afraid to let it. I love that. Why don't we, why don't we end there? All uh, right. Thank you very much. Um, this was a great conversation. Thank you so much. Talk soon. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Pablo. To learn more about him and his team's work, you can go to casetext.com. And now, since I love Pablo's Churchill quote so much, thought I'd share with you some more wise words from Winston Churchill. Success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. Thank you very much.